I'm Jo Fox, the Director of the Institute of Historical Research in London, and I'm here to introduce an interview with Justin Champion we recorded in April 2018. We recorded the interview to coincide with an event we were hosting on fake news, but we quickly moved into an extraordinary discussion on why history matters, an issue that Justin made his own. And this interview shows exactly why all of us held him in such high esteem. It's a beautiful interview, and it really brought home to me what contribution Justin made to the discipline of history. It's incumbent upon us all to build on Justin's legacy, to make a powerful case for history, why historical knowledge is so critical to our understanding of the world now and in the future, and why we as historians must not simply talk to ourselves, why it's so important for historians to take part in wider public debates. In this article entitled, What Are Historians For?, published in the IHR's journal, Historical Research, Justin powerfully argued that good history is history that is honest. It's also history that is critical, informed, engaged and committed. Most importantly, it must provoke debate. Such history will try to preserve what is slipping from our grasp and aim to recover what has been lost. As Justin says in this interview, it's historians who will save the world in the end. What affects me most about listening to this interview and in rereading Justin's work is a profound commitment to communicating history more broadly, opening up to the public, in Justin's words, good, robust and difficult accounts of the past. He was extraordinarily open-minded about how historians should communicate. Justin's total lack of snobbery about the profession is striking and inspiring. Indeed, he argued that academic navel-gazing is actively damaging our discipline. As he stated in his article, which is free to read on our website, entertainment and good history are not antithetical enterprises. For history to work in the broader community, it must engage, entice, entrance, intrigue, and fire the imagination. A book unread is not only mute, but dead. Historians have an intellectual responsibility to make every effort to connect the past to the public. History is, he said, ultimately a cultural form of public property. It was for this reason that he dedicated himself to sharing his passion for history with community groups, schools and the public. It's so important that we don't forget this, both to uphold all that Justin worked for, but also to ensure that we do not lose sight of why history is so critical to our understanding of what it means to be human. Well, Justin Champion, thank you so much for coming to speak to us this evening about history in the post-truth era. And I wanted to ask you whether you think that there are particular challenges facing historians in this so-called post-truth era. I think probably being frivolous for a moment, one of the greatest challenges is when you watch the TV or see stuff in the newspapers, you, you're almost on borderline apoplexy at the misuse of the past and how you know even quite sensible political figures will try and appropriate you know, the history of the Holocaust or the history of the Soviet Union or whatever for their own purposes. And very often, because you know, at university level, students are very, very critical and have been trained to be critical. 
the general public, although it loves history on the TV and, and even in sort of popular books, is not really as rigorous in assessing what they hear. So that, that's the greatest challenge, I think, for us as mm-hmm. historians. You know, since antiquity almost, historians have done a lot of uh, work trying to create a sense of credibility and trustworthiness, the mm-hmm. idea of witness, evidence and truth. So if we've got maniacs for political purpose corroding that trust and you know some historians aren't helpful to the broader project i won't name any names but i'm sure you know fill in the blank space <laughs> you know who, who are almost pens for hire and will you know whether it's writing absurd defenses of church or law you know celebrations of the great british empire um they create a sense in which historians are for sale and and i think the critical thing about the practice of history, not just the content, but the procedure, is that, you know, if we do it right, every MP ought to be issued with a a sort of historian who will stop them from being idiotic. (laughs) You know, I know from the science departments that they have interns and PhD students and postdocs who translate the, the difficult findings of science, especially climate change, into usable, trustworthy facts that will hopefully inform policy. Now, I'm not saying historians should be legislators of the world, because um, being a historian is, is fun most of the time. And, and you know, I, I've always had a commitment to believing that it's our job to communicate and to communicate effectively in a straightforward way, um, because we are ultimately publicly funded and... You know, for a long time, I think the universities treated, especially postgraduate history, as belonging to, and I use the word advisedly, a gentleman's club. Mm-hmm. It was the sort of thing you did because you'd be best off the streets or best out of politics. But I think we have a duty. And you know, the multimedia of the internet, of TV, and especially radio, is really benefiting the possibilities of the public of accessing good, robust, perhaps difficult accounts of the past. And I I think that's what we're here for. Um, I'd love to be in a room with Donald Trump and try and explain to him, you know, about migration and first settlers and stuff like that, because he's so obviously profoundly ignorant. Um, Even great political issues like, you know, the right to bear arms. He doesn't understand the history. And it's you know, that's why I say apoplexy is, you're always on the verge of apoplexy when you see history being misused. But I mean, I wonder, you, you mentioned these distinctions between fact and opinion, and you, I think there, there's now this question where fact is up for debate, which is an interesting development, and I wonder what, what your reflections are and what constitutes a historical fact, and who owns that right to determine what the facts are. I, I would have probably two quite old-fashioned um, answers to that. You know, facts are things that you find in archives. And, you know, I can remember back as a sixth former reading um, E.H. Carr, who said, yeah, facts are like fish. You only catch in your nets the sort of fish you've got the right net for. But I think that idea of going back to an archive and finding a record that nobody's read and being able to say that, you know, Alice Carter in 1620 in Malden created a bread riot, that's a fact. Now, what we make of that fact is something different. But I also think, 
Yeah, I have a problem with a lot of um, history of high politics. You know, it's amazing. I couldn't write it. But they're making connections that, as far as I can see, aren't facts. You know, Churchill was here, Palmerston was there, they talked about this, they might have done X, Y, and Z. And they're using imagination in in a historical way to create a a sense of a real narrative. But I, I don't often, that's the work of the historian is inventing those facts rather than finding facts um in the history of ideas it's even more complicated Mm. because we've been forced more and more away from the conceptual to think about the books who read them who printed them how they were annotated so the idea of a fact in the history of ideas is much more complicated but the brilliant thing is you can go and read the stuff yourself you know not everybody can get into an archive to look at, you know, the trial records of Alice Carter in Malden. But if you want to know what Thomas Hobbes says, you can go and, well, you can get it on free on the internet now. So I think we, we make our facts, but there are things that you have to cultivate and harvest. Mm. And it's, you know, a fact is something that's regarded by a community. So we're very good, and it's a slightly pretentious language, but historians are very good at creating literary technologies footnotes, references, citations, documentary appendices to, if you like, validate what they're claiming about that that past. Just some years ago, you gave a lecture here at the IHR on why history matters. Mm. I was listening to it. And in that, you argued that historians need to be the providers of informed, trustworthy and ethical opinion. And I wondered... um, how historians win public trust in a world where, in some quarters, expertise seems to matter less than the popular voice or uninformed opinion? I think that's a really tricky question, and, of course, there's a history to it. You know, the, the idea that uh, historians have erudition, that mm. they've spent hours... You, know, you, you could almost do a calculation. You know, I think you have to perform practice a violin or kicking the ball like Beckham for 10,000 hours in order to become an expert. Um, and certainly, you know, it's possible to reconstruct the amount of effort put into reading, thinking and writing and saying, well, this person has invested, if you like, intellectual capital in producing this material. And, and I think the problem is, you know, an undergraduate will recognise when they're being taught by somebody who knows what they're talking about. Uh, An MP or a Minister of State, if it doesn't fit in with their overall narrative, will make absurd comments about expertise. And, you know, that's worrying not just for historians, but for scientists too, especially over the issue of climate change. And interestingly, climate change scientists who will be briefing policymakers have had to come up with a really quite complicated methodology. I, w- I won't give you the acronyms because I can never remember what, but they, they publish papers on how you can, if you like, harvest from real tough science mm. useful, safe facts that can inform properly public policy. Now, I've been reading some of those, and interestingly, they're essentially the method that a historian would use. Do a survey of your sources, make sure that you've got a... a good statistical basis, no bias, then do a narrative 
of how those sources have been used. In in essence, that's describing the historical method. So I think you know the the creating a public consensus over whether X or Y is trustworthy, and you know I think public media hasn't always helped when history has become more an act of entertainment. And you know the I'm um, the famous uh, Vermeer painting of Cleo. Cleo is holding a trumpet as well as talking, so she's entertaining, as well as pointing it as a map, explaining how the world works. And I, and I think it's that very careful balance. But having the honesty, I think, and you know, historians are very good at saying when they're wrong. Yeah. You know, most good historians, if they've got it wrong, will go back to the source and rethink it. Yeah. Politicians never admit they're wrong. Um, so I think in, in one way, and you know, I think I've come to believe this more and more, it's historians who will save the world in the end. Because you know, we're, we're on the brink you know, at the moment of a potential third world war. Mm. And unless we have some historical perspective on the Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union, on Korea, Vietnam, and, and even on chemistry... You know, the, the language that we've seen seep into public dif- is highly probable. It's highly likely. It's more than likely. Well, if you wrote a book, a history book, using those words, that vocabulary, repeatedly, some other colleague will say, no, 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 come on. We want to see the evidence for this. So I think we're in a complicated world because we're in a world where there are many, many voices you know, it was easy in the Renaissance because we've got the Bible and that's the, you know, you decode the Bible, you've got the truth and that's where erudition came from. Now we've got lots of different Bibles and lots of different readers. But I, th- I think it's a question of historians recognising they have a role to play mm-hmm. and then performing well mm-hmm. and being prepared. You know, I, I'm sure you've all seen Philomena Kunk on the television. It's brilliant. Because it, one, it's parodying the sort of popularization of history. You know, no, I'm going to walk through a big, big room with my mouth half open and be able to talk without my lips moving. It, 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 you know, it's a parody, but it shows, I think, in an ironic way, how important the figure of the historian is. You know, we, we could have a long conversation about the gender of those public historians. And you know how on the screen you might authenticate. Normally, you put white gloves on and show some document to show that you're speaking the truth. Um, I think one of our colleagues once turned up with an iPad. No, new technology and ancient manuscripts isn't isn't the way forward. But but I do think historians in universities, but also historians out in the field. You know, I was involved with the historical association for a long time, and there are a lot of young people their parents and their grandparents who regard history as a safe space mm-hmm. where they can trust what they're reading and where they can follow disputes and perhaps even go into the archives themselves. So, th- you know, this may not resolve the problem of um, you know, global political conflict, but I think if we start from that view that as a historian, um, you know, as long as you've got a pencil and a piece of paper and you can read you can start to make decisions. So we don't actually need all the technology, although it's enormously helpful. Yeah. I mean, in that same lecture, it's interesting that you mentioned mm. the, the public face of history. You said that university historians had been too insular, that 
they could do much more to engage the public. Now, that was some years ago now. Mm. Um, do you think that's still the case? Do you think that's opened up in the historical profession at all? I, I think, you know, I was very full of it at that point because I was heavily involved with the Historical Association and I'd done a bit of research on where the Historical Association came from. And it was a joint... Um, project from history teachers and university lecturers, both of whom had new markets. It's it's over a hundred years ago, and saw that there should be a synergy between you know, research institutions and teaching institutions. Now, I, I um, was horrified at one point to discover that if you got involved with the historical association, other academics regarded you as somehow not quite good enough, and. It, you know, I, I, I had a brief to try and not change the HA, who, you know, have, that they are, I describe them as the historical militia. They're out in every province, they're in every school. But to try and persuade academics in all of the great universities and the less great universities that this is a huge platform for them to be able to play. And, you know, one of the things is you don't have to give a tedious academic seminar with 59 qualifications. You can entertain mm. your audience, whether they're you know, a group of 60-year-olds in Swansea or young school kids mm. in somewhere else. You can entertain them. You can enlighten them. Mm. You can get them enthusiastic. And there's nothing more exciting, if you're a historian, than having people who want to know more. So I, th I, think, I still think that the universities are very, very sniffy about the role of historians going into the community. You know, it, it, the oral historians have to do that. And, you know, how many times have I sat on job interviews and said, well, they're oral historian. What's that? Is that real history? And, you know, it's sad mm -hmm. because without those readers, whether they're school children, parents or grandparents, the whole business will go. So, you know, this, this is me being instrumental. You know, universities, if they were clever, would be thinking hard about impact, would be collaborating with institutions like the Historical Association and organising their young early career academics into having a connection with local communities. You could, you know, the HA could run a sort of, whatever they call it, continuous professional development course embedded in a, a local community but oh, well, I've got the ref to meet so th so this auditing of academic output into a very narrow field I think is is compromising mm -hmm. what history could be and you know in the early 20th century popular historians were selling hundreds of thousands of copies of books because they were regarded as a voice and you know the, one of the trivial things I think from Trevelyan, just after the, um, I think in the 30s, some point, Trevelyan wrote a history and the people pamphlet for the HA, and his greatest concern was that new build housing didn't have enough space for shelves, so people would start you know not have enough book space, shelf space, and of course post the 50s, 60s with television, you know we, we television is an opportunity I think. Um, although there are commercial and commissioning dimensions to that. But if you take something like In Our Time, mm. which, which is good for historians, good for classicists, good for scientists, you know, the Americans really don't understand how the BBC and the academic world can produce this stuff free. 
you know, New York Times, how the hell do these limeys do this? Because there you have a platform facilitated by a very skilled interviewer giving anyone insights into really tough stuff. Today it was Middlemarch, you know, the novel I've tried to read ten times. (laughs) And I always try and buy a new copy, a new edition. But they had three academics talking about it. And whether it's complicated maths or the history of the ranters, you know if you go to In Our Times and... Even now, young people on their mobile phones mm. download them for revision. And that, that's where we all ought to be, Yeah, I think. I'm just going to finally Sorry, take us I'm back to on. the post-truth age. Mm. And I just wanted to finally ask you whether there was almost a sense in which, when we read about the post-truth age, that somehow this is different to anything that's gone before, mm. anything that we've experienced experienced before do you think that's the case i don't think it's the case and i i think and this will sound a bit frivolous you know because people aren't well enough informed the reformation and coinciding with the invention of the printing press is is almost identical to what we see today and i I think of the reformation as a alt control delete moment where the old sort of um, certainties one religion one bible one interpretation were fractured and with print culture they had to invent new ways of authorizing a particular reading of scripture and the problem was everybody could read scripture so they had to invent new systems for embedding an interpretation in the text and i think that's where we are now so you could read um any number in France, in Spain, in Germany, in England, any number of people saying this printing stuff has got to be stopped. It's going to destroy our worlds. The problem is, and you know, in the UK in the 16th and 17th century, they, I mean, historians will call it censorship, but they regulated the press. They licensed the publications and commerce started to shape what was produced. The problem is today... You know, the the web is often blamed for everything, but actually it's the failure of governments to regulate what people do on the web or what companies do with what people do on the web that's the problem. So it's a failure of democratic states rather than the bad side of a new technology. We've just got to learn to use it better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I was involved in early attempts to put degrees online which everybody pan you know we'll all be done out of a job so no because ultimately people will want the tutorials that you provide offline um and you know i'll never forget the surprise at a fairly distinguished but now mature colleague who said do you know this web stuff is brilliant you put it all up there and next year it's all there <laughs> i said well you know just imagine what you can then do as a teacher, because you haven't got to faff about photocopying and you know, X, Y, and Z. So I think this is an opportunity. I, I think very often you know, it's, it's the newspaper's fault rather than anything who tell us we're in a state of despair. And actually, you know, I've stopped reading the newspaper. I have much more fun um, reading the London Review of Books or something like that because you get... A different pace it's not headlines it's let's look at the you know israeli-palestinian problem over 15 pages so you you can digest and absorb um so i think you know there is a problem but 
historians, I think, are probably the best equipped to deal with that problem. Justin Champion, thank you very much.